Good afternoon everybody. My name's Carl Hennigan. If you don't, I am Director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine, uh, Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine. Uh, in the weekend and evening I'm a GP and I'm also a dad of two. Um, I'm going to talk to you about and talk, take you on a journey around the idea of real-world critical appraisal in evidence-based medicine. Hi, Annette. Um, many of you today have been on your start of introduction to EBM on the MSc course. And David will be talking to you and Kamal about the introduction to EBM and some of the issues uh, about critical appraisal, study design and so forth. But what I'm really interested in is the panacea. Is how do we solve the problem of when you have a piece of evidence at the bedside, you can apply it to patient care then and you can make decisions really efficiently and quickly. And you can do that in real time. So that's what I mean by real-world critical appraisal. As opposed to the critical appraisal that I see taught a lot is sometimes I've been to sessions where it's been like four hours long. And it's been a checklist of 20 items. Do come in, sit down. We won't shout at you. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a checklist. And by the end of it, everybody thinks I'm never going to do critical appraisal again. Okay? And somewhere in your journey, some of you will have been on that journey. I've been there. And I found that to be demotivating and a real barrier to evidence-based medicine. So, this is a bit of a philosophical, but where I am now, after 20 plus years of teaching this, I'm thinking slightly differently about some of the issues. Uh, okay, let's start. So, so, this is a really unique book, and it's worth reading, Effectiveness and Efficiency, and it's by Archie Cochrane. And because it starts at this point of criticised a lack of reliable evidence behind many of the commonly accepted healthcare interventions. I think that's a unique starting point in the evidence-based journey. It's not that long ago, though. It's only 40 years ago Yeah, in our journey. So evidence-based medicine is relatively new in terms of where we're up to. Second, then, moving in that journey, you'll have got, here's the David Sackett traditional... Uh, diagnosis, or, uh, sorry, the traditional definition of evidence-based medicine. Still useful to think about the integration of research evidence with patient values and clinical expertise. And, and I always ingrain that because where it, most of it's gone wrong in the last 20 years is because people have taken that out, and they've certainly taken that out, and they thought evidence-based medicine is just about research evidence. And all practice can be based on research evidence, and once we've accumulated all the evidence and we've produced all the guidelines, then somehow we'll be in a position where we'll know what to do. And thinking about where you are, so in terms of the steps in EBM, you're asked to learn to ask questions efficiently, you've been doing that today, and search for evidence effectively. And you need to be really skillful at this. So that's the first thing. It is a skill. What defines if anybody who's any good at a skill is whether they practice it or not, and when they do it regularly. So a lot of people say to me, well, how do you know where to look? And I go, well, once you've been practicing a lot, you'll get the feeling for it, and you'll be really skillful at it. But once you find some evidence, the problem is, and this is an editorial by Doug Altman in 1994, that set out the pro one of the problems with evidence is there are huge shortcomings in a lot of the evidence. What would be ideal is, you would ask a question, you'd find some evidence, and it was so well done, it was only indexed in PubMed, and then you'd be able to use it because you'd believe it. But that's not true, is it? 
And so there are huge shortcomings in lots of the evidence. And one of the things is he published this in 1994. And he said, what we need is less evidence, but more higher quality evidence, but more better evidence. And it's interesting then, do come in, that's all right, nice to see you. We've got presents as well, have we? <laughs> wow. That's never happened to me before, people brought presents. Um, he said, well look, 1994, look what's happened. So actually, there has been a threefold increase in the number of randomised controlled trials in that time. So lots of better, higher quality evidence. However, when you look at observational research, it's a similar trajectory. You go from 100,000 to nearly 400,000 observational studies. Well, that's not better quality, if you're thinking about therapy. And when you look at Medline overall, you've gone from 450,000 to about 1.2 million in current numbers. So the first thing is, it is really easy to get published. Because a lot of us are publishing a lot of stuff on a daily basis. So when you think of all that, even if you just go back to the 32,000 trials on average, yeah, bear with me, and if you say, let's say, on average, they have no effect, okay, and it's a normal distribution. Now, when I'm in a room of researchers now, they go, what do you mean no effect? My research always makes a difference to patient care. But if you say it had no effect and it was a normal distribution, then you should expect about 800 trials a year to impact on clinical practice because 2.5% would be positive, 2.5% be negative, and all this stuff in the middle would be sort of, sort of non-significant, wouldn't it? It balanced itself out. Well, if we could produce a society that produced 800 new trials a year that impacted on clinical practice, within about four or five years, we'd be revolutionary in our approach to medicine. Things would be changing. That would be about two to three changes on a daily basis. And we'd be in a position where you'd have to stay up to date so often because you'd be like, I've got a better way of doing something. But everybody in the room who's, who's allied to clinical care would suddenly be thinking, but that's not what happens. When you actually ask people, like in clinical settings, they generally notice they do about four or five things differently in a year, and four of them are probably harmful and maybe one thing from beneficial. And in fact, when you talk to researchers, you would expect with all what we do, there'd be a skew this way to say actually more of it should be beneficial at the outset, because we design research really well, we are funded at the outset, and so surely then we should be able to say what's the number we expect to see impact on clinical practice. It should be more than 800 a year, but it certainly isn't. Now, always when you ask a question like that, somebody is out there, is if you go backwards in time, somebody out there will have done something before. And this is a study that compared new treatments compared to established treatments in randomised trials. They said, how often do we find new things make a difference to chick care? And in effect, they say new treatments are only slightly superior to established treatments when tested in RCTs. And this has stayed stable over time. Over the last 50 years, there's been no incremental improvements in the ability to show that we make a difference to patient care. So if you think about it slightly more, then the number is about 1,000 to 1,500 trials should impact on clinical practice, which is a huge number when you think about it. That means we're in a position to really radically change healthcare, and healthcare systems every day should be going, right, what are we doing different today? But we all know that's not the case. So, 
there's a significant problem in disconnecting evidence and evidence-based medicine that exists. And one of the key things is, why does that occur? Where does that come from? And why does so little of that research translate into practice? It's a really interesting phenomenon. What's going wrong? Or if it's all perfect research, why are we not translating that into effective care on a daily basis? It's a really interesting point. Now, traditionally, when we've looked at the three main problems, we think of it this way. There's a problem with external validity. The results of the trial just do not apply to the populations we see in practice. Somehow, all that research is in different populations. The second issue is to say there's internal validity. So there's something wrong with the structure and how the methods are applied. And there are, although they're positive, there must be huge shortcomings in the methods. Easily fixable, but must be there. Or the third thing is to say, okay, uh, we know there are outcomes, but they may be positive, but maybe they're just not significant for, to improve patient care. And that's called clinical significance. So although they're statistically significant, they may not be clinically significant. Okay? So, when I have problems like this, I tend to do a lot, is I go backwards in time. And I go and look and read papers about what other people have thought about this. And this is David Sackett, who, when I first came to Oxford in 1993, was di first director of the centre here, and I've worked with him until he died a few years ago. But he wrote this paper, which I uh, found fascinating paper, is there's only one formula that you're ever likely to need in the whole of evidence-based medicine, really, to understand what's going on. And in that formula, he said it's really easy. And I look at it and I thought, the formula is ridiculously simple and looks like this. I have to say, I find that not ridiculously simple. And so, when I see things like that, so he said, the confidence in, 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 in the benefits and harms of a treatment are directly proportional to signal, inversely proportional to the noise, and are, are a factor of the square root of the sample size. I don't find that simple. Anybody find that simple? No. I'm a simple person, okay? I like to simplify things in my mind. So I played around with it. So what we're saying is the confidence in the balance of the benefits to harm are equal to the effect size, are inversely proportional to the bias. And that's where I got to. And then I develop it some more and I end up with a very simple equation about how you might first start to think about research. Okay? You have to have a simple reference because what happens is when you put in all this critical appraisal and everything to work. You have to have a visual way of thinking what's going on. So if you find some patient benefit, if you want more patient benefit, it's directly related to the size of the outcome, isn't it? The bigger the outcome, the more benefit. Everybody happy with that? But it's inversely proportional to the bias. The more bias, the less patient benefit. Happy with that? And then it's third, it's, it's proportional to the optimal information size. That's why you do systematic reviews, isn't it? It's not about the data size, the more data you have, because you get to a point where you've got enough data and you can stop. Some people would like to say your patient benefit equals big data. But actually it's not. So when you're thinking about patient benefit and you're doing a systematic review, if you have a randomised controlled trial in front of you, you're thinking in your mind, do I have enough information? Okay. So patient benefit is only re directly relevant when you've got the right amount of information in front of you. So that allows you to think, if you can take that on board, you can start to think a bit simpler when you see a piece of information, a piece of evidence. You can start to ask some simple questions. And I want to take you through that journey. 
you think about the outcome. To what extent is this outcome important? You would want to optimise the outcome, you want to minimise the biases, and you want to achieve the optimal information size. That's what you really want to do in a really simple way. Okay. So, when I think about this, to me, I've decided that when I look at pieces of research, I actually start about, when I'm asked about confidence in the results and patient benefit, I start with the outcome. Doesn't matter how many times I've done this, I try to force myself to look at the biases, but I can never do it because it's too dull and it's too boring. The immediate thing I do is I say, to what extent does this outcome make a difference to my patient? Doesn't matter what piece of information, whether I'm looking at an abstract, you notice what you do next time you look at a piece of research. The first thing you do is you go, oh, what does the outcome say? You do not say, let me look at the method of allocation concealment. Right? But you could do, I'm okay, you can do, but I'll explain how I think we go about it. So, and, and the reason is, I'm going to come to, if the answer is no, you might consider stopping immediately. And I'll come back to this. Right? So that's the first thing. You've got a mindset now of a very simple equation that patient benefit is proportionate to the outcome, inversely proportional to the biases, and you need to achieve the optimal information size. You've got a very simple way of looking at all of research, and you can plug that in and go, right, I'm going to apply that. Okay. So, when I think about when people are engaged with questions, and I'm starting to teach, and I go somewhere, they often want groups of people to think, does this make a difference? Alright, so you've got about 30 seconds now. The person next to you, you're going to ask them and go, I want you, everybody's going to have to either say, do vitamins increase or decrease mortality? You've got one of three answers. Yes, no, or don't know. And I'm going to give you 30 seconds to talk to the person next to you and just decide what your answer is going to be. And everybody's got to have a vote. 30 seconds. Okay. Now, who said, who, in your pairs, who said yes? How many yeses in the room? Okay, so we've got one. Okay. All right, okay. Well spotted. Okay. So when you voted yes, what did you do? Who voted no? Who said don't know? <laughs> ah, yes. Right. Um, so every answer is right in this one. Uh, okay. Uh, yes. Well, actually, it's interesting when you look at the think, look at the evidence. Uh, it increases mortality. That is, patients consuming antioxidants were 1.03 times as likely to die as with the control, so slightly more. But if you had said no, when all of the trials were combined, antioxidants may or may not have increased mortality depending on which statistical combination method was employed. And if you had said don't know, you were thinking the increased risk of mortality was associated with beta-carotene, possibly vitamin E and vitamin A, but was not associated with the use of vitamin C or selenium. Okay, so it's really interesting, isn't it? When we talk about effect sizes, we're much more engaged in thought processes. We're interested in the effect size. If I'd have asked you to say, let's judge whether this is allocation concealment or not, you might have gone, oh, this is really interesting. But we start from this premise, okay? Right, question two. You've got 30 seconds again. You can answer this one, all right? All right? All right? 
I'm going to give you 30 seconds again. Should you use oxygen in people who have had a heart attack? Who's voted for yes? Okay, a couple of people. So we had about four groups, yes. All right, I'm going to come back to you. Who's voted no? No. Ooh, lots of no's in the room. Who voted don't know? Ooh, about, so there's slightly more no's and don't know's, and yeses are probably coming last. So the people who voted yes, why did you vote yes? <laughs> Come on. Is, and according to like guidelines and management, when uh, a person had a heart attack and the saturation, the oxygen saturation is below 95%, you should give oxygen. Okay. So you're going yes because you're using specific pieces of information. So there are, it's only used in, in, in people below 90 degree saturation. So you're picking out specific pieces of information that you can say yes. So you're adding that in. Um, if you go back here, what happens is the further back in time you go, it's interesting. When I was a medical student, we, used, we thought oxygen was a lifesaver. That was the drug of choice in heart attack. And in fact, now you're saying actually you want to put specific limitations in there. Alright, what about the no people in the room? No, we thought we'd say no as is because it's only recommended one, it's less than ninety percent. Okay. We thought we'd say no. Okay. But it's a yes, well anyway. Well, well even if you said no, you were still right. Actually. Because actually there were similar death rates in both groups suggesting oxygen neither helps nor harm in a routine use of oxygen and people have had a heart attack. So you're right. So if you'd have said no, you're saying no because you say, well, the routine use in, in this population is not indicated. What about the don't know groups? Why did you say don't know? The question's unclear. Okay, you think the question's unclear? Okay. Okay, so you're going, that's okay. And I think if you don't know, you could also say, well, actually, because we still don't know the answer to the question. But it's also about being specific about the actual scenario. So everything has a population that it applies to, doesn't it? You've picked out this has to apply to somebody, this research. It's not just an effect. It has to apply to somebody. I'm applying it already. You've already done it in this small scenario and said, I've applied this to a specific population below 90. That's my P. Above 90, it's a different population. So when we think about the outcome, you have to start to think about who does this apply to. That's really interesting. So it's not just the size of the effect, it's about who does it apply to. So that makes me think really interestingly about when I think about evidence. The outcome's not just about, oh, I found an effect. It has to apply to somebody, doesn't it? And that's quite interesting in its own right. Okay, so when I do this, so look, this is where we're back again. Does it make a difference? It's much more engaging when we think about that. Okay? If the answer is no, consider stopping. And I'll come back to that. It's not always true that. Now, one of the things is we found is the quality of the outcome. When I talk about optimised outcomes, there are huge problems within outcomes. So there may be an effect that's appeared. And we published this piece of research because every time I looked, there was a huge number. So there's surrogate outcomes, problems with composite endpoints. Problems with when you analyze the data. Here's outcome selection, patient reported outcomes. 70% of the outcomes don't mean anything to patients. They're not the outcomes they're interested in. Selective reporting. And so we ended up with a sort of system in outcomes trying to say, well, man, there's loads of problems with outcomes. Even when you look at the outcome, you've got to be aware. And these are my top three, surrogate, composite, and subjective outcomes. They're so prevalent now that they're an epidemic and people don't even are aware of them. 
So they don't say, look, I found a significant effect, and they go, oh, but actually, this is a weird composite outcome. Or, or it doesn't make sense, this surrogate won't actually make any difference to patient care. Down here, it may be a relative measure, it may be spawn, it might be multiplicity, so there's so many outcomes, you're bound to get something that's positive. It could be selective reporting. So we said there's a, not just, there's an outcome. It has to be a high-quality outcome if it's going to affect patient care. So you can radically start to think when you're looking at, does it make a difference? It's, you, you've already said, oh, well, it applies to somebody. What's the quality of the outcome? It's not just as there's a statistical effect. You're actually starting to think, does this actually make a difference to my patient? Will it in my head? Do I think this is applicable? And when you do that, you end up with more than one. So I've ended up with more. So patient benefit, although I'm thinking of outcomes, it applies to three questions. Who does this apply to? Does it make a difference? And is the treatment feasible? Because that's my third point. No use in thinking about, does it make a difference, if you can't actually do it, <laughs> is there? And you can see this all the time up here. So you see it inside diabetes exercise program, 16 one-on-one -on -one sessions. And I think, who's going to pay for that in our CCG? Not a single person. End of my assessment. So it's a sort of three items that we think can get rid of a significant amount of research really quickly. So when you're faced with your next piece of research, if you just say, who does this apply to? Does it make a difference? And is it feasible? My current estimate is that will get rid of about 95% of all research. And that's probably an underestimate. I'm going to try and do that and say, look, we're going to apply this to a prospective number of studies and say, how do you do this? Um, there are some caveats, though. Uh, if the answer's no, consider stopping. You know, is there are times when you get an answer that's no. And you shouldn't stop. It may be something where it doesn't make a difference to patient care, but you're actually doing it still. And that might be an example of too much medicine. You're doing something, and we just looked at one recently, and I've wrote a piece about it, which was monitoring in type 2 diabetes, self-monitoring in type 2 diabetes, doesn't make a difference to patient care, but we're still doing it. That's odd. The second is sometimes you miss an important outcome. So you might have a treatment which is potentially less risky, less invasive, but you're looking at mortality is, different, is no different. So a good example of that might be new oral anticoagulants. They're no better than warfarin, but actually there's a patient-relevant outcome that might be of interest, which is they don't require monitoring. So you've missed an important patient outcome. So you often have to say, still check. Okay? So that's what I do when I see a piece of evidence. And I get rid of a load of wave of evidence really quickly. And you can't quite see this at the back, but you, it, we're gonna, I'm going to publish this. And actually, it, pub, it, it, it plugs in to the PICO. So there's the population, there's the outcome, there's the comparator, and there's the intervention. So it plugs into your PICO that you've been taught. So it fits really well with that. So the first question is, when you get your population is, you know the population you've asked a question is. The first question you ask of the evidence in front of you is, does this evidence apply to the same patients I've got in front of me? Okay? The second question is, does this outcome make a difference? And you're checking for some important bits. You've probably got relative measures, but you need an absolute effect. Poor quality outcomes and my surrogate composite and subjective are the three most important you should look at for. There are about another 15, but they're the top three. If the answer's no... Why should you carry on? Apart from my two caveats, if it's too much medicine or you've missed an important outcome. But you could stop right there, couldn't you? 
and you get rid of a load of research really quickly. Now David's here worrying like mad because he's going, my God, I'm teaching a whole course about critical appraisal, but I'll come to you why I think this is really important and why it's really relevant. Okay? When you move through and if you're at a yes stage, you have to be aware of the other treatment options. Yeah? And you have to be aware of the comparator. And if you are aware it's an adequate comparator, you should move on and it could be potentially practice changing at that point. If you're happy that you, so the reason you need to know about the alternatives is often you might be seeing one antidepressant to placebo and that's where the NNT plugs in. If you're aware of the other treatment effects that are already in place, you might be able to say, well, this looks like an important benefit, but actually it's far worse than what we're already doing. Now, why is this important? Wherever I go, I go into a room, and I go into a room of junior doctors, I say, tell me about the last treatment you used. And they'll go, okay, I'll use it. I say, tell me, does it make a difference to my patient? And nobody can answer this question. Most clinicians in their practice don't understand what treatments they're using and how much difference they make. And can they quantify that to the patient? Because we should be automatically able to do that, shouldn't we? We should all be able to say, if I take 100 patients like you, and I give you this treatment, this is how many will benefit, and this is how many will be harmed. That does it make a difference. So you can revolutionise your approach in the way you teach this stuff, and think about it. If you say, okay, let me just think, does this really make a difference? And it's not just a function of the effect size, as I've shown you. And you move through this flow. Now, what's interesting about this flow is what I'm saying is... Uh, is, and after 20 years of teaching it, this was never in the mind. Ask a clinical question, acquire some evidence. There's a drop-off there, isn't there? Because you ask lots of questions, but you can only acquire the evidence for some of them. We just can't physically. There's not enough time in the day for me to find evidence for all the questions I have when I'm in clinical practice. But when I acquire the best evidence, I can very quickly do these three things in probably 60 seconds. I can do it mainly from the abstract. I might have some knowledge gap where I'm like, oh my God, I'm not aware of what we're currently doing in practice and what the effect size is, but that's a limitation of my clinical practice. But this step is relatively easy. And that means less should get through to the quality appraisal. Because by the time you're doing this, you're thinking about stuff that really matters. Do I believe this effect size? And if I do believe it, I should be thinking about applying it in practice. And you're also, this is what's really interesting, you're also making a judgment about the size of the effect and the importance, and then you're looking at to say, what's the impact of these on this? Now, if you've got a very small effect, you'll start to think, wow, this could be overturned by any introduction of bias. Whereas if you've got a much larger effect that you think will have an impact on patient care, you may tolerate more bias at this approach. But the problem I see is that most people do appraisal and think, right, I've done that job, let's move on, I've done my grade criteria, it's moderate, end of story. They're not relating it to this, the outcome. What impact does this appraisal have on the outcome of interest? Is it going to overturn these results? Now, that's really important in your journey of thinking about it, this. Because there's a real disconnect between people's ability to understand bias and its impact on outcomes. Generally, people disconnect the two in like they're two different functions. And like the bias doesn't affect the outcome in any way. And in fact, what you can see often is, we don't even have to form an appraisal, because I, often I'm being asked to assess effect. At this point, I'm saying, well, I'm looking at observational research. I don't need to do much more. I'm looking at the wrong type of research. 
Obviously, there's a huge introduction of bias. So if I've only got an observational effect with a small, small effect size, that's not that important. As soon as somebody tells me about an observational study, I'm like, well, that's interesting. But it's not even worth carrying on to do the appraisal at this point because I would want a randomised controlled trial and I definitely would want to see a systematic review at this point to be able to say, well, we'll implement this in care. And it's really interesting. Um, so here's an example. Okay, Last week, um, Science Media Centre, uh, David's on this list, I'm on this list, that they send out a study and they go, here's a study from the BMJ, it's coming out tomorrow, published on the 4th of October, it's 3rd of October, and it's 3.30pm. Could you get back to us by 4 o'clock with a quote? Alright. <coughs> and I need a cup of tea because I've just come from one meeting and I'm like, oh my God, and it's going to take me five minutes to open up my computer and get built it up. So literally, if I boil it down, I've got about ten minutes to give a quote and think about this study. Okay? And this study is about availability of evidence of benefits, overall survival and quality of life of cancer. And so I go, oh, this is stuff I'm really interested in. I could bypass it now plug in a critical appraisal, spend three hours and try and write some up, but actually, realistically, I've got about eight minutes to ten minutes. So what do I do? I plug in my formula. And basically, plugging in my formula, I think about the outcome. I did write one thing about the bias, but I started with the outcome. What does this outcome mean? And when you go to the Guardian, and pick up the Guardian from last week, you'll see that I said, Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine at University of Oxford could describe the lack of drug improvement with regard to survival as disappointing. It's hard to understand why half the drugs were approved in the first place if they provide no clinically meaningful benefit, he said. I basically have just shown you that in terms of cancer drugs, you could get rid of 50% of drugs immediately by just saying, do they make a difference? What's the outcome? And so you can plug in a system where you go, Oh, I could get rid of half of all cancer research just like that when I'm reading it. But what tends to happen is we think it's really technically difficult to engage with research and so we don't bother. But you could actually start to understand you can read this stuff really quickly and you can plug in something. You could have started with the biases. I didn't put another quote about the biases, the lack of robust studies, but nobody enjoyed that. Nobody picked that up. They prefer the outcome, so just as we do. So journalists prefer outcomes, public prefer outcomes, we prefer outcomes, and that's what really switches us on. And when you think about outcomes, most of the things we see are very small, statistical, tiny effects. <coughs> and so again, there are smart people who are out there who've wrote about this. And this is Johnny Yonardis' work, who says basically when you're assessing tiny effects, or public health are more common in the literature, Cautious interpretation is warranted, since most of these effects could be eliminated with even minimal biases and their importance is uncertain. So once you understand the size of the effect you're working with, and if it's particularly tiny, which is highly prevalent at the moment, you understand that if you detect any biases, which is what you'll learn about, you start to think, hold on a minute, this is going to overturn this effect size really quickly. So often you might not need to do an exhaustive appraisal to go, Oh my gosh, we've just introduced some biases. I'm already worried. And what you're trying to do when you're doing that critical appraisal is to see what's the impact of this bias in overturning that effect size. That's what's really interesting about a system where you can do it really rapidly. Thank you very much. <laughs>